Rebranded. Dear friend, as you now know, Johnny's senior year of high school had been anything but uneventful. In fact, it had been an absolute roller coaster ride. The low points felt unsettling, unpredictable, and sometimes downright dangerous. The people around Johnny would brace themselves for impact. I myself began to really worry about my brother and wondered if his reputation would reach a diminished point of no return. But there were high points as well. Every roller coaster ride has them. It was during those times you could still see the fun, charming, and even friendly young man that still resided inside of Johnny. The highest point for Johnny that year came in the form of a new relationship with the girl from the shack I mentioned before. Her name was Ashley Underwood, and she entered Johnny's world at a tumultuous time and held his attention like a drill sergeant training a difficult brigade. She even talked him down from the ledge when he insisted on enacting revenge on Adam that frightening winter night at the club. Ashley convinced Johnny his time would be much better spent with her and even offered to talk to Adam about putting a stop to his attacks on me. I appreciated that. Johnny agreed to it, but promised to come down on Adam even harder if he disrespected her or continued to terrorize his little brother. Fortunately, that did not happen and she was somehow able to peacefully settle their dispute. I appreciated that, too. Now, to understand Johnny's fascination with Ashley, it might be helpful to first understand a bit more about the girl that caught his eye the moment he saw her. The only thing we knew about Ashley Underwood in the beginning was that she lived in the old neighboring mining town of Livingston, New Mexico. Johnny and I had played baseball there several times over the years, as Livingston was also known for their competitive prowess in the sport and had earned the honors of hosting big county and statewide tournaments on at least a few separate occasions. We appreciated the memories Livingston had provided us throughout our young baseball careers. The fact that Ashley lived there instead of Jefferson may have been one of the things Johnny liked most about her from the very start. Little did he know, Livingston would someday hold storms of heartache for him as well. At the moment, Johnny was enticed by Ashley's perceived personality. She was mysterious and seemed to carry her own secret songs of past misery and pain. And yet, she also appeared to be confident in her own skin. Like she was comfortable protecting those secrets, and planned to share them only with those who might be lucky enough to get close enough to her. This alone was enough to draw Johnny in. But it was her seductive beauty that really transfixed him. He would say, Eli, she's gorgeous. Her long, curly blonde hair falls perfectly on her face. Oh, it's so intoxicating. And her dark eyes, they speak to me. It's like they're daring me to dance a little closer. And her body, bro. Oh my god. It's irresistible. I had obviously seen her before. I thought she was attractive, but nothing to lose sleep over. Johnny, on the other hand, was completely hypnotized. When he learned that Ashley also rode horses and was a cowgirl at heart, he was all in. It only added to the allure, the mystery, the challenge. Johnny wanted to know everything there was to know about Ashley Underwood, and he needed her to free him from his own dark past, to take the place of baseball once and for all. And so, as he had done with baseball for so many years, Johnny put everything he had into this new blossoming love. It wasn't hard to see that Ashley enjoyed it, too. She liked the attention and special care he offered. 
She liked that he was a strong guy, a fighter, but also had a kind heart underneath his tough exterior. She liked that he was handsome, charming, and didn't take himself too seriously when he was around her. He did, however, take their relationship very seriously. Johnny would quickly assume the role of hopeless romantic, doting on Ashley at every turn and declaring his love for her from the mountaintops. He would ask family, friends, and even strangers, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she just perfect? What do you think? Should I marry her someday? This was the only time Ashley ever seemed embarrassed, blushing every time Johnny did it. It was obvious she didn't really mind being held up high on someone else's pedestal. And she had plenty of good things to say about Johnny, too, when asked. She once told me, Your brother is the nicest guy I've ever known. The guys in Livingston aren't like him at all. I'm so glad I met him and your family. Johnny and Ashley were good together. When it all started. They had a lot of fun together. They challenged each other, enjoying a competitive playfulness that amused those of us around them. And physically, they had a real connection in chemistry that was palpable. Most of the time, they just couldn't seem to keep their hands off each other. I noticed that right away, and decided early on it might be the right time to start hanging out with some of my other friends. I figured a healthy amount of space might be good for my brother and I for once. I was also delighted to see that Johnny's reputation seemed to be on the rebound a bit. People started to rebrand him as a decent kid who might just become a good man if he can keep his head on straight. For the remainder of his senior year, Johnny stopped getting into fights, got refocused on school, and did his best to stay out of trouble. He really wanted to earn Ashley's love and admiration, and realized flunking out of high school or ending up in the prison pipeline wasn't going to garner anyone's blessing. But we were all very relieved when we found out he would still be able to graduate on time and Johnny was happy to be making his family proud again. Despite not having a plan of what he might do after graduation, Johnny did know one thing. He definitely wanted Ashley to be a part of whatever came next. She, not baseball, would be his lifeline now. With her by his side, Johnny was ready to give Jefferson another chance. Meanwhile, I was making new plans and friends of my own, by the start of the second semester of my freshman year, I was feeling more and more comfortable with my growing interest in theater. I was in the process of rebranding my own reputation. I wanted to be known as a talented, strong, and courageous performer. I wanted to be admired for my competitive spirit and my well-rounded abilities. In reality, I was already thinking about how I wanted to be remembered when I eventually graduated from Jefferson High and went on to achieve bigger and better things. Ultimately, I wanted my reputation and my legacy to be one and the same. But I did realize I had some time. And time was a gift. A gift of opportunity. An opportunity to both work and play. If Johnny had always been a fighter, one could just as easily argue that I had always been a performer. I seemed to have a knack for expressing myself and entertaining others, even from an early age. Remember, I didn't mind being in the spotlight. Case in point was my grand performance with Chris at the health clinic a few years earlier. The reward that day was a bag full of condoms and a great laugh. But now I was learning the essence of theater was the art of storytelling itself. And some friends and I were ready to get to work. Two of my friends in particular, DJ McAllister and Nick Hartman, 
became the perfect co-stars. DJ was the cool, confident one. He was smart as a whip, sarcastic by nature, and a king with comedy. I had actually learned this the hard way the year before when DJ and I were in the same 8th grade social studies class at Roadrunner Middle School. Our teacher, Mr. Tilfer, could tell we didn't like each other from the get-go. But instead of just chalking it up to unnecessary adolescent angst, Mr. Tilfer decided to take a different approach. After hearing us shout obscenities at each other from across the room for the entire fall semester, most of which DJ easily won, our fearless leader sat us next to each other and paired us up for the biggest group project of the year. DJ and I were forced to work together for the first time and quickly realized we could handle the situation one of two ways. We could either do it the easy way or instead take the path that led to only one place, a dead end. Adolescent angst aside, we were at least smart enough to pick the right one. We not only aced our group projects, we also became friends in the process. Mr. Tilfer really knew what he was doing on that one. Once we became friends, I also learned DJ was loyal beyond measure. He always had my back and never let anyone say anything negative about me without putting up a fight. He was beginning to fill Johnny's shoes in that regard. In fact, he and Johnny had a few things in common, the most interesting one being girls. You see, DJ McAllister was also good with the ladies. Nick and I couldn't believe the ease at which he would secure dates and end up with new girlfriends on what seemed like a weekly basis. He would trade them in and out like stocks and bonds. But somehow, DJ would always remain friends with them when all was said and done. Nick and I, his two wingmen, never quite understood how he accomplished that. I kept a watchful eye, though, realizing I might learn as much about girls from DJ as I had from Johnny. Nick, on the other hand, was the seemingly shy one. At first glance, he was an introverted, simple, soft-spoken guy. But after closer consideration, it was clear he was so much more than that. Nick was a big kid with an enormous heart. Talk about a fitting last name. And I should have known it from the start. The first time I met him was at the very beginning of our freshman year at Jefferson High. I was still in a cast for my broken leg from baseball tryouts and had been given access to the school's elevator for getting up to classes on the second floor. You were only supposed to possess one of these golden keys if you had an injury or other legitimate need for one. I had hobbled up to the elevator one day and quickly realized I didn't have my key on me. I was sure I had it in my pocket, but there was a pretty good chance it had fallen out somewhere because I basically had to wear sweatpants every day that semester. A highly fashionable choice for a brand new freshman, I know, but I had to wear something that would fit over that stupid cast. As I stood in front of the elevator, distraught and embarrassed, I heard someone walk up behind me. When I turned around, I saw a guy with a baby face and a body about twice as big as mine. It's Eli, right? He asked. I shook my head in the affirmative, but didn't say a word. I was a little shocked by his size. You're in drama this year too, yeah? Again, I nodded in agreement. Cool, me too. I'm Nick. Here, you can use my key if you want. I'll go up with you just in case. Nick helped me out that day, and he's been one of my best friends ever since. Nick Hartman was the type of friend who was always reliable, always available. If me or DJ needed help with anything, 
Nick was there. He was giving, gracious, encouraging, and supportive. The only thing that rivaled his enormous heart was his infectious smile and laugh. Nick seemed to always be smiling and always telling jokes. He was funny too. DJ and I got a real kick out of the fact that Nick would often laugh at his own jokes and could also surprise you with a sarcastic quip that you weren't expecting. The three of us solidified our friendship in theater that year and would forever be tied together by the things we experienced and created there. It all started with our teacher, Mrs. Dragoni, a frail-looking Italian woman with fire in her veins and a voice that could stop an army with a single command, Mrs. D, as we called her, was intense. She was fierce. She was passionate. Mrs. Dragoni was a force to be reckoned with. She was a dragon personified. Her name was fitting as well. On one hand, Mrs. D could be downright mean and make you feel like the smallest thing in the room. Other times, she could make you feel like a giant. She expected your best and would accept nothing less. And over time, Mrs. D got the best out of my two friends and I. That was inside her class. Outside of it, we were free to write our own stories, mold our own performances, and create our own memories. We were free to have unbridled fun. And we most certainly would. The three of us would spend hours scripting out our next big adventure. Every adventure was highlighted by a performance. Everything from stopping shoppers at the entrance of a department store because one of our contact lenses fell out, to reenacting scenes from Saturday Night Live in the middle of the store, to bumping into the backs of moving cars in the parking lot and proclaiming in agony that one of our feet had been run over. It was all fair game, and we were able to pull it off together. Together, we were quite the combination. I was actually the most serious one of the bunch. I loved having a good time and earning a good laugh, of course, but I also wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted people to know I could do anything. Comedy, drama, you name it. I wanted to be the best when it came to theater, and school, and anything and everything else a teenage boy might find important. Truthfully, what I really wanted was to be confident. I would have given anything to not be so self-conscious at that time. When I looked at myself, I still saw that scrawny, pale, pimply-faced kid. A kid who hoped theater would help him outgrow and outshine his inadequacy someday. Fortunately, I had two friends who saw something greater in me and loved the perfect ensemble the three of us had created. Together, my new Motley crew and I would use the world as our stage, and everyone around us was a potential player. We got an absolute thrill out of involving others in our grand adventures. One of our favorite things to do was make up the most unlikely stories, spread them like wildfire, and wait to see who might believe us. The more people we could convince, the more successful our story. The more a story got shared, the bigger the thrill. Our three most successful stories came in the form of what we aptly named our Big Little Lies. Buckle up, my friend. You're about to go on this adventure, too. As rumor had it, DJ McAllister couldn't swim. He couldn't swim because as a young kid, he witnessed his best friend drowning under a solar cover in his pool one day. DJ tried to save him, but was quite claustrophobic and was afraid to go into deeper water. 
He was only able to get to the bottom of the steps and was then forced out of fear to watch his friend take his final breaths as he begged DJ to help him. Needless to say, he was scarred for life and refused to ever attempt swimming after that. Or so the story went. As he got older and was invited to more and more pool parties, DJ's big little lie became increasingly difficult to manage. But he was a committed performer. As long as other people were around, he stayed out of the pool. It was the only formula that would keep people believing his story for years to come. Nick Hartman couldn't cry. His story involved a supposed fishing accident from when he was a young kid too. His father had taken him out on a boat at a nearby lake to teach him how to fish one day. As Mr. Hartman was showing him how to cast the line, Nick took a step behind him thinking it would be the best place to watch the entire process. Turns out, it wasn't. The treble hook caught Nick right in the eye. Before Mr. Hartman even realized what had happened, he quickly pulled the line back and tore Nick's tear duct out of its socket. This part of the story always received gasps of horror and shades of sympathy when we told it. But there were a few inquisitive minds who would sometimes ask, what about his other eye? He could still cry out of that one, right? This is where the improv training for Mrs. D's class came into play. We concocted a suitable, yet unsubstantiated medical reason for Nick's full inability to cry out of both eyes. We'd say something like, well, normally when one tear duct isn't working, the other will compensate for it. In Nick's case, the opposite happened. Somehow his other tear duct lost the ability to form tears too. Just completely dried up on him. He experiences every other sensation of crying, just no tears. The doctors still don't understand why, but Nick's never been able to cry ever since that accident. The harder we sold it, the more people that bought it. His big little lie worked for years as well, until a girl broke up with Nick and cured him. He cried like a baby that day, tears and all. <laughs> My story contained no traumatic accidents, physical injuries, or puzzling medical mysteries. My big little lie was that I was adopted. I wasn't born into the Andrews Band. Instead, I was allegedly welcomed in with open arms. The tale went as follows. Mr. and Mrs. Andrews were on a trip to visit Ruth's parents in New Orleans when they were told that there was a young local boy who needed a home. His name was Elijah Miller. His birth mother had passed away, and his father simply didn't want to raise him alone. His father was a well-known local named Glenn Miller. Uh, no, not the musician. He designed and built floats for Mardi Gras. Glenn was a man who worked hard but liked to party on his time off and couldn't be bothered by some kid he didn't want anymore. He didn't tell the adoption agency that, of course, but everyone knew it was the truth. The only other family Elijah had in New Orleans was an old distant third cousin, but she wasn't interested in raising a child alone either. That's where the Andrews family came in. Once they learned and heard my story and met me in person, they adopted me without hesitation and moved me out to New Mexico for a fresh start. Now, there were two things about my story that should have signaled major BS right away. One, Mardi Gras floats? Really? I mean, do people actually do that for a living? But we sold it pretty hard, nonetheless. And some people actually believed it. Too many people. 
the other thing about my story that should have been a red flag was the fact that Johnny and I looked like real brothers. It was beyond obvious we were blood-related. Sometimes people would ask about this, and DJ Nick and I would simply chalk it up to coincidence. When that didn't work, I would go into full-on dramatic mode and talk about the emotional damage the whole ordeal had caused me over the years. To not be wanted. To be given away. Do you know what that feels like? I would say. On a couple of occasions, I even got myself so worked up, I actually cried. It was great practice for the work we did in Mrs. D's class, and it helped to sell another far-fetched, nonsensical, big little lie. Anything for a memorable story, right? Much to our pleasant surprise, these stories and others did spread like wildfire. And as our successes grew, so too did our friendship. DJ, Nick, and I would spend virtually every day together that year and beyond, writing countless stories and experiencing many great adventures along the way, a few of which were daring ones. We'd spend a night in jail together for breaking curfew. My old friend Chris was present for that one. Get chased through the desert by one of our girl crush's military moms, gun in hand, and eventually escape a foot chase with the cops, just narrowly, after painting the road in front of Jefferson High as part of our senior prank. No matter the circumstances, the three of us were there for each other through thick and thin. Looking back on all of this, I never stopped at the time to consider how Johnny might feel about my friends, and the fact that they were filling his shoes in some really important ways. I simply figured he was off having the time of his life with Ashley. Maybe he was. But there was one experience that year that probably offers some greater insight. Johnny and Ashley had invited the three of us to go camping with them and their friends up in the Capitan Mountains just outside of town one night. DJ was on board from the start, figuring there would probably be some older girls there to flirt with. Nick, however, needed a much stronger nudge. He knew there would probably also be alcohol present, and he wasn't exactly comfortable with the thought of a bunch of drunk teenagers stranded on the edge of a mountainside. He wasn't wrong. But I convinced him we would primarily stick to ourselves and that we needed him there in case something happened to me or DJ. Not that it will, I promised him, but you're Mr. Reliable. We can't go up there without you, man. As always, Nick came through for us. The night got off to a great start. After putting up our tent just before sunset, my friends and I built our own little fire in a temporary pit that we structured out of rocks. I'm sure it looked like a random heap of garbage, but for us it would do the trick. We even had a few older girls drop by when we first lit the fire and stayed just long enough to get warm before disappearing into the night. DJ and I grabbed a couple of bottles of Boone's liquor, the old standby wine cooler at the time, and stood by the fire ourselves. Nick joined us. He was drinking a hot chocolate. We bantered back and forth for a bit, reliving some of our best stories and laughing our heads off. Johnny eventually heard us and came over to join the fun. What's up, jokers? Glad to see you're having a good time, he said. Nick replied first. Yeah, thanks for inviting us, Johnny. Then DJ chimed in. Eli's always telling us how cool it is to hang out with you. Nice to be along for the ride this time. Johnny smiled. Then he said something I'll never forget. Well, I had to see what's so special about my little brother's two best friends. Just remember, 
He's only got one real brother, though. Johnny walked up and put his arm around me. Nobody will ever come between the two of us. Right, Eli? I laughed nervously. Of course not, Johnny, I said. I like to think of these guys as being more like cousins. Still family and all, but I don't have to live under the same roof as them. We all laughed as the fire and fun continued to burn on. Just then, we heard Ashley yelling for Johnny. And when we looked in her direction, we saw a very drunk version stumbling toward us. What the hell, Johnny? She slurred. I've been looking for you all night. You bring me up here in the middle of nowhere and then just ditch me? What kind of man are you, huh? And of course, I find you with Eli. Always standing me up for your little brother. She walked up and put her arm around me. Eli, Eli, Eli. Mr. Perfect. She grabbed my face and squeezed hard. Can't do anything wrong, can you, Eli? I looked over to Johnny. Uh, What's she talking about? I thought she liked me. Then I tried to play it cool. I didn't realize I was an issue just because I'm awesome. Nick and DJ laughed nervously. Johnny stepped toward Ashley and I. Uh, She does like you, bro. She's obviously just really drunk. Ashley, let go of Eli's face. Uh, Thank God he reminded her. It was really starting to hurt. Then Johnny stepped in between us and told Ashley to leave me alone. She did not like that at all. She began to stumble off, cursing below her breath. I could tell Johnny was torn, unsure of whether to stay with us or go after her. It's okay, Johnny, I told him. You need to get her into your tent so she can sleep this off. It's all good. He looked at us, shaking his head in frustration, and said, Sorry, guys. Wish I could stay. But Eli's right. I better take care of this. You heard the lady. Mr. Perfect here always knows best. See you jokers later. And just like that, Ashley had basically come between us. I got a glimpse of another side of her that night. A side of her I didn't like. Come to think of it, I got a glimpse of another side of my relationship with Johnny that night too. I wasn't sure I liked that either. But again, things were really coming along for DJ Nick and I. Our friendship was really growing. But we were having a blast. Our freshman year was going great. Even inside of Mrs. Dragoni's class. But it wasn't all just fun and games in there. Like I said, she always expected our absolute best. And for my part, I would make sure she got it. I wanted to be the star performer after all. And I couldn't wait to show Johnny what I'd been up to while he was busy swooning over Ashley. I got my opportunity at the end of that freshman year when I was cast as the main character in a one-act play about a guy who was convinced he was a werewolf. The play began with the soft-spoken, nerdy Harold pleading with his therapist to take him seriously and help him. By the end of it, he would embrace his deeper animal instincts and demand respect from his overbearing mother, his brash wife, and his completely apathetic therapist. Harold would become the werewolf he was meant to be, and I would bring the house down with my hilarious interpretation of the story and commitment to the physical transformation of the character. That's what they wrote in the school newspaper anyway. 
It was the first time I received a standing ovation. It was the first time I felt like a real performer. And perhaps most importantly, it was the first time my big brother saw what I could really do. Johnny ran down to the stage screaming, That's my little bro! He's a star! He's my hero! He then proceeded to lift me onto his shoulders so everyone could see me and continue cheering me on. I had never seen my big brother so proud of me or heard him express so much joy and excitement because of something I had done. I did feel like a star that night, and that experience officially introduced me to my first true love, the theater. I remember telling my family and friends, this is what I want to do with my life. This is who I want to be. I'm going to make the world a better place through the power of storytelling. My people were happy I found my passion, that I had a real sense of purpose above and beyond anything baseball had ever been able to offer me, that I now knew where I was headed. Everyone was excited for me, especially my big brother. As it turned out, Johnny would have a big announcement of his own. He and Ashley would be presented with a whole new purpose, a whole new challenge. Shortly after graduation, they would share the news. Dear friend, this is where Johnny and Ashley's storm really began. Unfortunately, it's not where it would end. Johnny would soon be rebranded once more, this time far beneath the skin. Letter number four, Mom to Johnny and Eli. My dearest Jonathan and Elijah, something has been weighing on my heart and mind lately. I'm realizing I don't have much time left with you. Before I know it, you'll both be grown men, ready to go out into the world and become everything you're meant to be. I remember just before Eli was born, I wrote you a letter expressing how important you are to me and things I wanted to instill in both of you from very early on. I've strived to reinforce those things as you've grown up and want you to know how very proud I am of both of you. I always have been. I probably haven't said it enough over the years. There are a lot of things I haven't done as well as I wanted to. But I hope and pray you both know how much I love you. I'll always be here for you. Being your mom has been the greatest honor of my life. Eli, I've always marveled at your imagination and creativity. It was only fitting you found your way into theater and performing. I always knew you would end up doing something like that. And I'm so happy you found your passion and know what you want to pursue in college and as a career. I'm excited for you and know you will be successful in whatever you do. I believe in you, my son. Johnny, I've always admired your heart and spirit, the way you put all of yourself into the things you love. It hasn't always been easy for you, and I know your strong-willed nature has gotten you into trouble at times. You've always been very passionate, and that can help or hurt you, depending on what you do with it. I also know that losing baseball was your first great heartbreak, and it took you some time to recover from it. But I'm very proud of the way you've bounced back. Your father and I want to thank you for working so hard to finish high school the right way. A high school graduate. Where is the time gone? You're becoming a fine young man, and I'm excited for your future as well. 
It seems Ashley will be a big part of that future. Treat her well, my son. Your father and I are here for both of you, no matter what. Boys, remember to follow God's word. Walk in his love. Have faith in him and in yourselves. And continue to be there for each other. Never forget what I told you many years ago. I've often tried to remind you. Someday, it will just be the two of you. You will only have each other. Your brothers and make each other better. Be good to one another and make sure you always express your love and appreciation for each other. May you both know the love and appreciation I have for you today and every day. With all my love, Mom.